Everyone dreams about living an uncommon life, but how we define that dream is very different for each of us. And for most, it's a lifelong pursuit. Welcome to the Uncommon Life Project Podcast. We're going to introduce you to people who are living that life or enjoying the journey to get there. We're going to also give you some tools, tricks, and tips for starting or accelerating your own efforts to live an uncommon life, a life worth celebrating and savoring. Please welcome your hosts, Brian Dewhurst and Philip Ramsey. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Uncommon Life Project, where I'm your host, Philip Ramsey. And I am Brian Dewhurst. And today we have more of a tangible show for everyone. Uh, one that is one of our seven sources of residual income, and we have an expert on this whole topic. It's Matthew Leeper, which has been good friends with Brian Dewhurst for quite some time. So I hope we get into some personal stories. <laughs> um, maybe the time when he was cross-dressing. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Totally joking. Brian, hit us with a bio. Let's jump yeah. right in. And before we get started, we just wanted to make a caveat that this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice. Thank you. So Matt, uh, we go back almost, I think, 15 years. So this is super exciting to me. Uh, Matthew is a specialist in intellectual property. He's an attorney with international experience as well. He actually resides in Canada right now. Expert idea builder and patent drafter creative thinker with deep analytical resources and business acumen, and an avid public speaker. Welcome to the show, Matthew Leeper. Hey, thank you very much, guys. Look forward to being here and uh, sharing some insights uh, on these topics. Nice. So what is the seven sources that we're going to jump into, Brian, talk about? Yeah, so we've been meeting a lot more people. Um, it's just part of our normal course of business, and we're talking about the seven sources. Uh, the one that I think is probably the furthest reach for most people and even including ourselves, that we probably have the least experience with is um, I would say kind of like royalties is the sixth uh, residual income. And so we wanted to have on someone to kind of break down uh, as you're building a business, as you're building a brand, um, trademarks and how those apply to business and branding and protecting your intellectual property and then also patents. And so we've had several people kind of approach us with, hey, uh, I've got some patents with a you know public company, but I've got other ideas, and I'd like to pursue potentially patents on my own. And that's a different process, you know, not having a corporate uh, backing, so to speak, mm -hmm. and uh, and some other people just some invention ideas, and then uh, as it relates to kind of um, you know intellectual capital, that type of thing. And so, so we're going to try uh, to be very practical yeah. with our listeners today. And Matthew, you're going to be the perfect person to dive in on each one of these little nuances. And being that you're a lawyer, you have great knowledge and expertise in it. So thank you for being part of the show. Where do we start this whole conversation? Oh, absolutely. H happy to help. So basically, if you got two tools in your tool belt that we're talking about, we're talking about trademarks, which protect your brands and how customers perceive your products and your services in the market and the goodwill associated with that, mm. you know, versus patents, which protect, you know, the utility or the design of certain novel, you know, aspects of your, of your business, you know, various products or services or methods or things of that nature. So they're two kind of fundamental different types of protection, but what they both are, are intangible assets that are on the balance sheet that you can use to generate, you know, revenue with. So basically I want to just talk about those two tools from the perspective of the, you know, of the startup or, you know, the more individual, you know, inventor or, you know, the growing concern and, help people understand how to use them, when to use them, give a basic sense of costs and a basic sense of what they can do on their own, 
you know, without, uh, you know, professional support to kind of, you know, de-risk and make sure that these are, 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 are valuable tools for them. Nice. Perfect. Perfect agenda. So let's jump into, let's start with trademarks, if you would, and um, kind of just start there. Yeah, no problem. So, so trademarks protect, you know, as I said, the, the, that brand identity. And they, they, they guard against what's called consumer confusion is really why they exist. And that's to prevent some consumer from going to the store and buying one of your competitor's products, thinking that it's your product. So basically, for example, what happens is you'll have a lower cost provider that might try and somehow or another use your branding or your designs or your trade dress or something of that nature and then try and, you know, uh, sell their product and get somebody to just buy it. And that happens all the time. And, you know, you go to Amazon, you know, you hear about, uh, you know, some of the things that's happening from products from other countries and such. And a lot of times it's a lot of trademark violation because there's a cheaper product that's coming in, sneaking in as your kind of brand. And somebody's buying it and they're getting your margins and they're decreasing the, the value of your brand because it's often a lower quality product. So, so could products. you think of like Gucci in New York? You know sure. what I'm saying? Like the old yeah. Gucci bags? Yeah, know? yeah. yeah. Th- th- those, are, those, those are extreme examples. But then, and there's even simpler examples, you know, uh, beyond that where it's just still a problem for somebody to try and appropriate it. Some kind of similar naming or, you know, anything along the line. Yeah, dude, that's really a good point. Especially for Brian and I, like the Uncommon Wealth Partners the uncommon wealth. Like, I feel like we need to get that trademarked and we have not done that yet. I mean, this is great for me. Come on, let's go. Matthew, you're my man. Yeah, <laughs> Let's keep no going. Problem. I love it. Yeah, no problem. Well, then, so the nice thing about trademarks is that you get some level of protection, whether or not you pay any government fees or not under what's called common law. And it's not, it, that doesn't happen in every country in the world, but it does happen in us and Canada and, you know, the Commonwealth countries, you know, the UK, things like that. So basically if you're putting your product to use in a local market, you're going to get some rights to be able to prevent others from using that exact name, you know, out of the gate, you know, now the benefits of having a federally registered trademark for comparison, which is kind of what people think about when they think about getting a trademark. And that is filing an application with the United States patent and trademark office. And then that, you know, basically makes your trademark, you know, national in scope. So basically anywhere in the U.S., whether you're active there or not, um, you know, then you're there. Now, for your business, you guys are an internet, uh, you know, providing a service over the internet. So arguably you're everywhere. Uh, but nonetheless, there's still some who would argue that, no, no, this is, all, you know, this is, you know, Midwest at best. So it's, it, there's a fight to be had if somebody picks the exact same name in L.A. and they start getting a bigger following than you. The benefit of filing that registered trademark is that you're, you're kind of there and you're ahead of them. Mm-hmm. And then, and then the other nice thing about trademarks is that one, if you get it and you keep using it, they last forever as long as you continue to use it. Wow. I did not know that. How much yeah. would that cost to try to get it registered? Let's just go through it. And you said there was a free option where if you just put it up, yeah, yeah. you have some level. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. The free option is just use it, you know, so, and you're already doing that now. So for, you know, to use you guys as the example, you've got your website, you've got your logos out, you know, you're already, you're already making products that are covered by what would be your common law trademark protection. Okay. Um, you know, so, 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 but, but again, the benefit of the registration is then it, it takes you out national. So the, 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 the steps are, you know, there's some searching involved because you want to look around to see if anybody else has that exact trademark before you go spend money on, mm-hmm. on, on a trademark app. So yeah, so the tool is called the trademark electronic search system or TESS and it's available somewhere on the USPTO.gov and it's just a free way to go out there and see if someone else has registered your exact name you know, and you can see if they have, and if it's in a different service category than you, then maybe there's still room for you. Um, if it's in the exact same service category, you know, that can be a problem. 
And so, it, you know, you can decide whether it's worth it to rebrand or whether it's worth it to go try and fight through an application or, you know, all kinds of, uh, of questions that, you know, will get more complex if somebody happens to be right in your way. Yeah, you let's know, and talk through that because we've had a yeah. couple people, clients-wise, that have gone through this and was like, it's not a big deal. I'm thinking about Adam. Well, if, no, if you pick a really wild name, you know, like, uh, you know, like Wild Turkey Financial, you mm-hmm. know, then, uh, you know, then nobody's, nobody's, usually people aren't associating Wild Turkey with, uh, you know, with financial services. So then it's <laughs> unlikely that anybody's going to like, you know, stop you or be in the way. Right. But, yeah. you know, but, but it, it really can derail you. I think yeah. about um, Yeti because like, you know, the Yeti microphone brand and now you've got the Yeti cooler. Oh, good point. Uh, recreation brand. I mean, they're both using the identical name. Yeah. It's totally different businesses. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's what I mean by service categories. Like they can, they can have different service categories, but if you're going to go, if you're going to have the same exact name, you better have different logos and there better be some differentiation or you're going to, eventually you're going to run into a fight. Gotcha. You know, and that's why, you know, this trend toward having, you know, wild startup names and things like that. It's actually not, if from a trademark perspective, it does make things easier. You know, if you're making up a whole new word, word that no one's ever, you know, used before, you know, then, then that's how it works. In terms of like uh, the trademark scale, the strength of your rights, there's like a scale that means it's either, you know, it's either, it's either super nuanced and super, you know, it's just not, it's a very uncommon word, very exotic word. Thank you. All, you know, all, yeah, all, the, way, all the way down to like, um, uh, you know, banking for banking. You know, so like, you know, the more generic you are, the less str- strong your rights might be. And the more exotic you are, the stronger your rights might be, particularly if nobody else is using that exotic name. Because then anytime, here's the, you know, anytime anybody hears the word, you know, uh, some magical word, they just, that's it. That's all well, they I have. I think uh, Philip, uh, Philip is a huge proponent of the sport spike ball. Mm-hmm. And like they, that was the name of their brand, but it also eclipsed the name of that like sport. Right. And they were forced to do something, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, another one is Rollerblade. Yeah, Rollerblade. They were forced to not call them Rollerblades anymore because that was the company name. They had yeah, that's right. That's right. State. So yep. Yeah, so that's the other side of trademarks. That's kind of the risk side of trademarks is that, you know, if you get your mark and you, you succeed, your mark becomes so popular like Kleenex for Kleenexes, then basically everyone's using the mark and you can't really stop people from just saying, you know, the name of a thing. You know, so, so that, that, that goes to also relying on counsel or just being, you know, really careful that you brand your product. So in other words, it's a Kleenex tissue, not a Kleenex by itself. Mm. Because if that, so those kind of nuances are, are, are things you do after you get the right to maintain it. Wow, gotcha. that's really cool. So okay. now that was the free route. Let's talk about how much it is if you're going to go get it registered. Yeah, so, so well, no, we danced a little bit in the registered uh, process there because either way you're going to, you know, the, the free route is you just put it to use. You don't have to do any searching. If you're going to register, kind of the first step is to kind of do some searching to get a sense of whether you should register, right? Mm-hmm. And if you've done your searching and you determine that, yes, this is a good idea, you know, then there's a couple thousand dollars in preparing an application, um, moving it through and going from there. Now, on the low end of that, Hopefully, you know, if there's nobody in your way, the application just sails through and there's not a lot of attorney time involved. You know, basically you, you file it, it goes through the process. If nobody raises their hand and says they, you know, that they, they object and no one's in your way, then you're going to get the right, um, you know, for, you know, fairly inexpensively, probably, you know, for a couple thousand dollars. If you have to go and argue it, or if you're going for an exotic right, like, you know, to like, uh, you know, to, for example, like to a smell or a color or, you know, some other kind of nonverbal type wow. of unique uh, trademark protections, you know, then you're going to pay a bit more for that. That's crazy. You can do smells. Unreal. But <laughs> oh, yeah. it makes sense. Yeah, well, totally makes sense. We had no, 
the, the, the Louis Vuitton red bottom shoe is one that, you know, I find interesting because, you know, you, you, you see that anywhere and you immediately know, you're like, oh, that's a Louis Vuitton. You know, that, that, that's what that means. So. Mm, wow. Okay. Wow. Cool. Yeah. Okay. What else do we need to talk about that trademarks? And then we can move to patents if you want. Um, I think those, those, are the, those are the biggest things with trademarks is that you get a little, you get some rights just by putting it to use. And what I generally advise is, you know, if you have the capital up front, great, go ahead and file your applications and get it. If, you know, you want to get out there and test the market a little bit, spend some time testing the market, get some revenue. And after you've got a little bit of revenue going, then go ahead and formalize your right. And I don't think that's bad advice, but, you know, it, it, it's kind of just a, a business risk and how aggressive do you want to get with it. I want to go to patents Super and I want to come back to crazy stories. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I know you got some. <laughs> okay. Go to patents. All right. So with patents, you know, I kind of want to just start with when people kind of come in contact with patents, generally speaking, you know, if it's in a non-corporate sense. And that's either they've come up with some idea that is the next big thing or a good friend has. And the good friend is like, hey, I need to raise some money. Will you, will you, know, will you go in with it with me? Those are kind of the two contexts where somebody starts thinking to themselves, okay, how much is it going to cost to get this right? Mm-hmm. And that first half of the conversation you know, is important. It is, you, know, you have to really be careful as whether that initial investment is worth it. But then there's a whole lot of other money that may need to be invested to monetize and to figure it out. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a bigger endeavor than most people think. And, you know, so it's, it's just important to really kind of frame patents as a, a higher risk investment at times mm. for a lot of reasons. It's not that there can't be great returns. And, you know, the Super Soaker is a, a product example that was very successful. And there are many, many like that. Uh, but, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's a different animal. Good point. Walk us through, like, I, I'm a huge fan of Shark Tank, the show I yep. watch with my kids. And, you know, a lot of times they have these people on there that have, you know, produced a, an item or something. And I think it's yep. important to, you know, maybe in the context of this conversation, framing the difference between a product and a business. You know, a lot of times these guys are like, well, this is a great product, but it's not a business. And then That's right. the next question they'll ask them is, you know, do you have a patent? And they'll say, well, yeah, I have a provisional patent or I'm patent pending. So can you kind of yep. walk our listeners through kind of those nuances? And Yeah, absolutely. you'd be happy to do that. So first we'll start with just what is a patent? What is the legal right that we're talking about here? Mm-hmm. And it's two basic things. It's, you know, one, it's, it's a right to exclude anyone else from making or using your invention, right? So it's, it's not a right for you to practice it necessarily, but mm-hmm. it's a right to stop others from doing it. And in that regard, it can be, you know, viewed as a legally sanctioned, you know, monopoly of sorts. Now, it's a limited monopoly because, you, you know, if you become the only person in the industry, you're still going to have antitrust problems. But if you're a smaller startup and you're moving forward, it's a fairly limited monopoly. And so the idea is you kind of want to work carefully to make sure you get a broad scope of rights that really cover, you know, the, the magic of your product or the magic of what you're offering or the secret sauce of it. And it may not be the entirety of your product line. It may just be some flagship parts or a critical component of a lot of your products. But that's kind of what you're getting a patent for is to kind of get that protection, right? So that's, that's what the end goal is. Now, compared to a trademark, a patent is a 20-year monopoly. So, you know, it, yeah, so, and it has a much more rigorous examination process up front. And so, therefore, it can be a lot more expensive. And so, that's kind of, you know, those are all things to think about. And so, with that said, then, we'll kind of pivot a little bit to the process. And then I can kind of uh, use that conversation to both outline the process and kind of explain where the costs are. And, sure. and most importantly, talk about the things people can do, uh, you know, themselves without having to hire someone. You're doing cool. great. You're killing it. Keep going, great. Matthew. Yeah. All right, cool. Glad to do it. All right. So, um, so where a lot of, you know, individual in- inventors start is with a provisional application, especially in the U.S. And what that is, is it's an unexamined filing with the patent office that gives you a filing date. 
and allows you to say that as of that date, um, you know, this is what I invented, this is mine, I'm gonna figure out some claims to it later. You don't have to have claims at that point. It can be fairly informal, all the way down from just your notes, all the way up to a full-blown, you know, uh, a compliant patent application. Whatever it is, you're able to rely on it and go from there. Uh, for a lot of uh, individual investor, inventors, uh, and investors for that matter, the challenge with the provisional, and this is probably one of the more important parts about patents, is that it can be a trap. Because if you come in too early, and you only got your idea halfway baked, and you write the provisional yourself, and you just kind of throw it together and file it, and that's that. And then after filing it, you go and talk with a bunch of people, and then maybe you realize some of the best parts about your idea later. You know, there can be a challenge between, you know, what's filed and what's out there. So there's a lot of homework that needs to be done. And while you can just go file anything, it's far better to keep everything super quiet for as long as you can, like literally just yourself and a small team, everyone under NDA, and develop something slowly than it is to rush. And yeah. so, so that's what a provisional is. You know, it can be used effectively and it can be used ineffectively, but it's just an unexamined filing that gets you a filing date. Okay, good. Yep. And, and so the cost of that, the filing costs are, are, are you know, are very low. If, if you're a, if you're a first time inventor, you know, the costs are like $60 us to file it. So the filing costs with the government aren't much, wow. but where, where people will spend money is in, um, you know, making the application, you know, uh, giving it some weight, giving it some thud value so that when you want to rely on it later, you've got some really good stuff and yeah, the best yeah. practice you know, what the, what the big guys do, what the, you know, what the leading inventive companies in the world do is that when they file a provisional, they just pay the money up front and it's basically a full blown perfect application from the gate. And, you know, they can afford to, you know, they can afford to do that and they can afford to drop some and not go with others because they, their, their economics are different, but that doesn't mean it's still not the best practice, which is to make sure that your provisional is, is professionally drafted and, and very, you know, does a very good job of, of describing the subject matter without, unduly limiting the invention or holding something back or, or whatever. And I guess the last thing I would say on all that is, you know, uh, so, you know, uh, uh, to have a, prof a professional help you file the provisional, you know, with minimal edits, you're looking at a couple thousand to try to, to draft a full blown application and file that. It depends on your subject matter of your technology that can go 10 to 20,000. It just depends on what, you know, what, what are we trying to invent here? You know, is it a new chemical formulation, you know, to cure cancer or is it, you know, a new type of aluminum can? You know, it, we have to, you know, the, the, the relativity is, is there to the complexity. So anyway, that's, that's what a provisional does and that's how that works. And you try to make that as general as you can. Like there is a wedge that looks like this and it doesn't even show, tell you what like industry it's supposed to be working in. It's just a wedge and see if you can get that passed. Is that correct or is that wrong? Um, um, what do you mean by wedge in that example? Like, uh, like, like the, the application itself or? Or like the actual invention itself. Like you try to right. generalize that as easy as possible. So it could be like any wedge, but like obviously that wouldn't happen or that wouldn't go through, but you try to make yes. it as broad as you can, like a broad stroke. Yeah, no, I see what you're getting at. So, so, and so that gets to the question of patentability, which we can kind of talk about because obviously there's no point in filing a provisional or non-provisional or anything after that until you've had a sense to kind of figure out, is my invention patentable? So, mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, so this, and, this, and this consideration probably goes ahead of the provisional talk. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, the idea is simple that, you know, there are, there are three basic doors to patentability is, is, is one example of how it's been described. And so one of those doors is utility. You know, is it a useful invention? Does it work, right? The next door is novelty, which means is there any one publication or one thing out there that is exactly the same as my thing? 
mm-hmm. right? And then the third one is obviousness, which says, okay, you know, there isn't one thing out there that's just like my thing. But if I take two known things and I put them together, which anybody would do, then that would be my invention, right? So th- those are the challenges. And you have to overcome each of those challenges. So, you know, if you're going to put forth a wedge and you're going to put forth a claim that says, I claim wedges, well, that means that I can bring any prior art wedge that, that ever existed out there, right? And all of a sudden, I, I can cause problems for you in the prior art sense because you, it's harder, you know, you haven't invented every wedge. Mm, uh-huh. but, but on the other hand, if we work together and we study the prior art, you know, we might come up with a claim that says, you know, I, can't, I claim a, a wedge having, you know, a, a top face and a bottom face and a, you know, a parabolic front face and, you know, an interior core with, you know, some kind of material in it, you know, and an aerodynamic tail, you know, something like that, right? Something that gets a little narrower towards what is the magic of your particular wedge, right? And so that's where patents can kind of come in and, and it's a balance between trying to get as broad as rights as you can and trying to just really hone in on what is the part of your structure or your method or your process that is, you know, doing the work that is really creating a unique result. So one of the things I want to talk about, Matt, because we kind of talked about this a little bit as we, you know, uh, as we were preparing for the the show today um, and kind of you just alluded to. So best practice, you know, let's take a big company like 3M, you know, they're, they're taking 30% of all their revenue and putting it into R and D and they've done that for a hundred years. So a company that's generating tons and tons and tons of patents, right? Yeah, that's it probably the right way. You know, their their employees are under under an NDA, non-disclosure agreement. They have a massive budget for R&D, research and development. Um, but one of the things you said before we we started recording was that to file a patent, you don't need a prototype. And so kind of walk our listeners through like, you know, should they go through prototyping and that type of thing um, versus, you know, probably like a 3M is probably prototyping, testing, breaking. Yep you know, numerous times. Yeah. If you could expound on that, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. So um, depending upon the complexity of the invention, you know, most simple mechanical inventions and many simple electronic inventions, you know, prototyping can be optional. If you can describe the invention in such a way that a person of ordinary skill in the art can make and use the invention based on your written descriptions and pictures, right? So if you can provide a set of instructions and those instructions are clear enough that someone can pick it up and build it or you make it or use it, then, you know, you don't have to prototype now, but just cause you don't have to, doesn't mean you shouldn't mm-hmm. because the thing about prototyping is sometimes you, you draw something out and you think it works and you're so excited about it. And then you go, you go talk to somebody to build it. And then they're like, yeah, you could do it that way, but you should really do it this way. And then you realize, Oh, wait a minute. There's a whole fundamentally, fundamentally better way to do it. And, yeah. And so that iterative process you know, it, it's, it's, it's very useful on its own, mm-hmm. but in the, but you know, but it, in the wedge example, you know, if you can just kind of, if you can truly think of a simple mechanical invention with no moving parts and you can truly envision how that can be better. And let's say in your invention, the thing is made out of titanium. Well, you don't have to go forge titanium. Like if you know it's going to work and you know, it's better and you know, no, and you've done the homework to know that no one else is, has done it, then, you know, you, there's no obligation to prototype. There's wow. no obligation to do any Ever. searching either. Prototype, you know? yeah. Wow. That's super cool. Really cool. Yeah. Now, with, with the exception of some, like, again, if you come up with a biological cure for cancer and you're trying to assert that this magic liquid that you made in your kitchen, <laughs> you know, cure, you know cures, kitchen, cures cancer and you're trying to protect it, you know, you're probably going to need something to back that up or, you know, you're not going to pass the utility bar because they're going to wonder if you, you even, you know, if what you say is true. And 
and let's just touch on that real quick. I don't want to spend a lot of time there, but so then there's an FDA process in the U.S. Would that be totally is that separate. different than the patent thing, or yeah. is that the same? That's entirely 100% separate from the patent system. Gotcha. And depending upon your product, if you're doing medical devices, which is an area I have a, a fair amount of experience in, then you know obviously if you're doing invasive, surgical, you know more advanced instruments that put human life at risk, you know you've got to navigate a whole bunch of hurdles that are completely mm. independent of the patent system. Gotcha. And that's, that, that, but, but mentioning that is an interesting thing. Think of the way people use patents, right? If I'm a small, let's say I'm a medical doctor and I know, I know a few things about a few procedures and I come up with some stuff that, that I don't think anybody's doing. And I've been going to conferences about this stuff for a long time. Right? So if I come up with this idea, I want to put it forth. I may never have enough money individually to, to navigate the FDA process because it may cost millions. Oh yeah. That's but I true. may be able to patent it have an amazing patent portfolio and then sell or license that portfolio to a much bigger fish who would then be able to do the FDA process and then go forth with it. You know, such as your Boston Scientifics, your Medtronics, your Strikers. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, those, so then those guys can look at you as like an, out, like an independent R&D provider, basically. Gotcha. And, you, and you can do a deal with them. And the patent becomes the basis for that negotiation. Because without the patent and without the patentable rights and without the government monopoly, and all the homework that goes with that, then you know, how do you prove you got something valuable? It's hard right. to negotiate with, with, with those with a lot of resources when you sure. just have a PowerPoint. Yeah, it's so yeah. fascinating. <laughs> so fascinating. And then, so I want to go back to our Louis Vuitton example with the red bottom shoe. I think it was Gucci. Yeah, um, that was Louis Vuitton. <laughs> that to me is like, would that be a patent or would that be a trademark? Because it's actually a physical good. Yeah, no, it's a great question. So basically there are aspects of uh, any shoe that can be covered by both trademarks and patents, right? So in that particular unique instance, the trademark is in the coloration and the location of the color. I mean, I haven't read it, but that's kind of what it's about. It's about mm-hmm. the look, the color and the location of the color. That's kind of what they're trying to protect, right? Gotcha. At least from my outsider understanding. Um, from a patent perspective, you can have a design patent that protects the shape of the shoe, gotcha. right? Just how it looks, not how it functions. And let's say there's some kind of there's some kind of fancy thing about the shoe, like some kind of uh, you know some kind of I don't know like some a feature that like James Bond. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, yeah. With now like a mini James Bond in the compartment who will come out and clean your shoe. Yep. Something really special. So then you can protect that function with a utility patent. So in that regard, you could protect all, you could have three layers of protection on that. Wow. And so if somebody tries to copy your shoe, you've got three ways to basically, you know, strike back at them. Gotcha. Huh. Okay. I want to jump in now to phenomenal job covering all that, by the way, that was awesome. Sure, yeah. In a very um, like exciting way. Yeah. By the way. So now hey, let's say you're on the other side. You've, you've got the trademark. You've got the patent, probably more so the patent, because like if we trademark our business, we're probably not necessarily going to maybe license it to somebody else, more so a patent. But what is someone, you know, small guy comes up with a patent, doesn't really have the wherewithal to go start the business. It's aligned in an industry where there's already major players. Um can you walk our listeners through kind of licensing or royalties and maybe the difference? Yeah. Getting paid. Experience there. Getting, Getting paid. Show me the money. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. I can. I, I got to cover one more topic on, pat, on patents before okay. I can jump to Good. that. Okay. So the, the, the two main costs about patent that have to be considered or, or what kind of determines the actual cost of getting the right. Once you know you want to you invent something, you filed your provisional, you know that you have one year from the filing date of that provisional to kind of do something and provide, file a non-provisional. You've done all the homework, you've done the, you've done the searching, you've done all that, right? Mm-hmm. Then there's still a decision of, 
how broadly around the world do you want patent rights? Like, do you just want patent rights in the United States? Do you want North America? Because that's easier to kind of control. Do you want a global strategy in which you would go for like the biggest, you know, most industrialized countries in the world? Like, you know, China, Japan, Korea, the US, Europe, you know, those kind of things. There's a whole decision. The reason why that's relevant to licensing is because trademarks and patents can either be one country or many countries in scope. And of course, the amount of money that you can command is going to be relative to where, where your licenses are. Where, where are your buyers? You know, and so there are ways in which you can lock up 80% of the industrialized world and no one can practice your invention without coming through you. And if you're that guy, then you can command more on your royalties. You know, whereas other people say, you know what, the U.S. is, is, is they respect laws more than any other country. I have local control. I'd rather have 20 patents in the U.S. covering every aspect of my invention rather than one patent going around the world. So it's just, gotcha. that's all part of the balance. And so, so now having said that, then basically when you want to go to monetize, you're trying to find people that basically either are making a product like yours, already have the manufacturing capabilities and would benefit from access to your intellectual property rights, right? That's what, that's what a, like a licensee would be. And a lot of times you just kind of approach them and, you know, you can go to the store, look around for people that are selling your product. And every one of those persons or companies is basically a potential licensee. Once you have the patent, you can share it with them. And you can send it to them and you can try and establish a business contact, you know, and you don't have to have an NDA because, you know, you've, you, you've, if you're just going to talk about the filed patent and it's published, for example, then, you know, that, that's it. It is what it is. This, this, these, are, these are your rights. So you just got to convince them to go along with it and, and that's it, you know, and, 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 and then, you know, the other, part, the other part of it is enforcement, you know, and so if you've got really broad rights and, you, you know, you know a company is making your product, you, you try to approach them and they blew you off then the other way to make money on it is by, you know, by suing them and going that way. And even if you're going to do that, sometimes it makes more sense to license your assets out to a more sophisticated partner who can handle the litigation for you, you know, rather than trying to, you know, invest a couple million. And so that's really what it ultimately boils down to for a smaller investor, you know, uh, you're, you're, you're going to get a a royalty stream that's, you know, 10, 20% at most 30% of your invention, if you're lucky kind of thing, you know, and that's just from, from what I've seen that's out there, because you're going to have to give away a lot of it to a lot of other people along the way to help it get made and help it happen. And so you're just hoping that your invention sells enough where it all makes sense. And, you know, simpler products, you know, simple mechanical inventions are nice because you don't even have to go that route. If you can actually make it, then, then you can build a company that has patents and sales. So you, you can value the company based on those two things. And now it's not a hypothetical conversation of if you give me your factory, you know, how much you're going to give me of the thing, you know, it's, 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 I can make it, I can sell it. Then you have, that's another animal. And so that's probably, you know, uh, you know, the more, the, the more practical route even is to kind of figure out a way that something you can make and, and, and stay in control of the longest you can. But nonetheless, if, uh, if you've got a great idea and, you know, parts of it are out of your control, but nonetheless, you have the, you have the R and D and you can put it together. I mean, you know, it, it can be a great experience, you know, and then I guess that would be the last thing I would say about, you know, what, how do you make money on patents or how do you get value out of patents, mm-hmm. right? You know, just to kind of put a couple final bullet points on it. You know, you can get value out of patents by licensing it to others, you know, either willingly through business negotiations or unwillingly through, uh, you know, through lawsuits and stuff like that. Um, if you build a company around these intellectual property assets, then the two things become reinforcing. The fact that you've got some sales of a protected product means you have sales at a higher margin, means you've got more products that are going out there. 
and increases the overall value of that company, especially if you can make it and stay fairly in control yourself. And, you know, and then lastly, there's the intangible values of the patenting process. And this is true for individual inventors or for startups as well, because you may think your idea is one thing, and then you get to study in the prior art, uh, which, by the way, there's an amazing free resource called Google Patents, which is just a keyword-based search that you, know, you, you can go out there and search for your idea at any time before you contact a professional. So let's say you go out there and you do that, and, you, and you, you, know, you, you, you can kind of figure out for yourself what other people are doing, whether it's worth proceeding with this idea or to use a, a, you know, some Shark Tank language, whether the idea is better just taken, taken behind the barn and shot. Because I tell you, some of my ideas I'm really jazzed about and I'm excited, oh man, and then I go look for it and there it is. And then yeah. there's, there's no point. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I want to pull back. You did a brilliant job of walking through that. Here's my question. How did you get so passionate about this type of law? What oh, do you for, think of your DNA kind of got you hyped up about this? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm a professional engineer as well. I'm a registered mechanical engineer in, in Nebraska. And so I have, um, I have the engineering background. And from a supply and demand perspective, when you're in law school and you have that technical background, intellectual property is just a really good fit. And so all that made a lot of sense, and I certainly found all that interesting. But I mean, I'm, I'm, I've written maybe 75, 80 patents at this point, and what I really just enjoy is the writing process. You know, I like working with uh, an inventor who's got you know, a little bit of spark in their eye, a little bit of fire, and wants to kind of take over some part of an industry or have some, you know, you know, has some ambition in that area. You know, I enjoy the process of, of helping them take their idea in whatever form it comes, you know, napkin sketches, whatever, and then turning that into a professional document and with, you know, with a, a robust intellectual property strategy and helping them to, you know, go get those rights as well as how to make money from those rights. And if necessary, working with some of my other lawyer friends to help them sue people or, you know, whatever it is, you know, mm -hmm. I've, I've seen a lot of startups start as, you know, individual investor in, inventors in a garage and then, you know, uh, with some good counsel and, and some persistent work and a little bit of money from friends and family, you know, they're able, to, they're able to, to, to truly profit from it. And of course, on the flip side of it, I've also seen people spend, you know, $20,000, $50,000 on, on patent assets that, you know, don't survive uh, litigation or that mm -hmm. never are never going to be worthwhile because, it, it, you know, they, they just, it's just too narrow and it's just, you know, sometimes you miss the market. Right. Yeah. And it's definitely a little bit more risky type of investing, right? You've talked about that before we got on yeah. we hit record. And so here's my yeah. question. Um, I mean, I think there's some of our clients and listeners that will be interested to reach out to you. How do they hear more about you? How do they get in contact with you? Is there resources out there that they can maybe listen to a webinar and stuff like this? Well, no. Well, first of all, I appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity today to share some of the insights. Um, you can find me at MatthewLeeper.com. I have full contact information and everything there. Uh, you know, we, we can schedule something there. You can send me an email. Uh, you can also look me up at my law firm, Smart and Bigger, uh, you know, uh, here in Canada, which is Canada's, you know, it's like 126-year-old firm. So, that, you know, they've got me and they've got people with way more experience than me. And this is all we do, you know, and, and this is, you know, intellectual property and helping people, you know, get their protections is where I'm going to, you know, focus my energies going forth. And, you know, that's where I'm at. And, and then maybe coming up a little bit later this year, I've got, you know, a couple book projects and some other things that I really want to work on with respect to the drafting and all that. But in the short term, you know, I certainly welcome contacts and I'm happy to answer questions and I'm happy to have, you know, a half hour, you know, hour initial consultation with pretty much anybody so long as we can work on scheduling and, and, and see if it's a good fit. That's such That's a awesome. good resource for our listeners. Okay, give me one crazy story. Just, <laughs> just hit me with one. I'm just dying to know it. You've got one. Let's hear it. 
Well, I mean, the, the the craziest thing I would share about Brian is, you know, one day we were all we were all moving oh, in one yeah, direction. Yeah, me, Even man. Better. That's about me. Just like, oh no, 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 no. It was no. It was we were all moving. We were all moving in one direction in life, and then Brian, you know, uh, I had some children come into his life, yeah. and he was just sorry. Right, he just manned up and was like, so? all right, guys, I'm gonna go handle this business for a while, maybe indefinitely, and, <laughs> yeah. and that's and that's how it went down. So I always appreciated that, you know, because not everybody makes that decision at that moment. For and sure. Brian stepped up immediately, took care of everything. And, and you know, uh, that's part of life's adventure, you know? I love it. That is even better than what I was Well, thinking. the one thing I'd say too, and I've always, uh, you know, as you grow up, you kind of lose touch, but life, you know, takes you in different paths as you kind of say them. But I've always appreciated you, uh, Matt, and just the way you think and your intentionality and intensity of the way you pursue things. And it just came forth today uh, and just how much, you know, expertise and research and, uh, and practice you've devoted to. Mm-hmm. To this space so it's just been super cool to to catch up with an old friend and uh you know rekindle that friendship so thank you so much for your time today no expertise. I, I, yeah absolutely you know i, I have my ten thousand hours in on the subject of intellectual property and i've been working specifically on the patent prosecution patent drafting you know side of it from the beginning so it's yeah. it's where the passion is and it's an area that uh you know i want to continue doing and and i think you know uh basically i'm just a non-fiction um, technical writer or creative writer, basically <laughs> at the end of the day, I just happen to write patents. So nonetheless, happy to share my advice with, uh, with you guys, happy to chat. And uh, if any of your listeners, you know, want to, would like to chat further, certainly welcome to contact me. And if I can help them, I know people literally all around the world who certainly can. So yeah. we'll get it figured out. Very cool. Huge resource. Well, we thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you found value, please rate it. Uh, put something on the comments. But uh, again, thank you so much, Matthew. And yeah, you've been listening to the Uncommon Life Project. Have a great day. Thanks, everybody. Goodbye. That's all for this episode of the Uncommon Life Project, brought to you by Uncommon Wealth Partners. Be sure to visit UncommonWealth.com to learn more about our services. Don't miss an episode as we introduce you to inspiring people who are actively pursuing an uncommon life.